something comes along, we want to take advantage of it. We want to be able to take advantage of it. I, I, I was on a little group text a, a few weeks back when the Kevin Hart concert was announced, and I was just playing around. I said, anybody buy extra tickets? No, anybody know extra tickets? Why not? We know they're going to sell out. People going to still want them. Them same tickets you paid 120 bucks for sold for 185 the same week. Now, I don't know about you, but an extra 65 on something I paid 120 for sounds like 50% return. Where are you getting 50% return right now? These things are out there. They're available. They're around. And just like Pastor Edwin said, these things are going to come. We got to be ready for them. I promise you they are there all the time. Just remember, keep in mind, money is a tool. You are the craftsman. These become very important because Pastor Edwin said something six weeks ago. I think it was six, maybe five weeks ago about, about when you pray, being instead of focusing on your problem, focus on God. Instead of talking about what's wrong with you, talk about what's right with God and his power in it, right? And when he said it, 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 it completely, from that point on, from, that, from the point he said it, it changes the way I pray. And one of the things I do, like I said, if it's something I want to know, I go look for it, right? So I said, well, if that's biblical, I should be able to find it. First thing that came to mind, Jesus being tempted. Every single time Jesus was tempted, he responded with word. I said, God, dog it. He didn't say, man, God, I'm hungry. He said, man, don't live by bread alone. So if you change, and by you, I mean this one, this one and three. Y'all know that one, one and three. Uh, but if you change your, your, your focus, right? And instead of praying for, about your, your problems and your, and your plight, start focusing on God's power. Does it change the way you work? Does it change the way you go after things? Does it change the way you treat your kids? Does it change the way you treat others? Does it change the way you treat church? It does. So when we talk about these things, part of the reason that we talk about them outside of money is because people get caught up on money. I don't want anybody to know about my money. You don't know, you don't know my struggle. Yeah. Look, let me tell you something. My mama had me. She dropped out of college. She never finished. I grew up with my grandparents in the place that most of y'all see on First 48. I'm not joking. Them real streets. My neighborhood has been on First 48 a bunch of times. I took Erica there. She was like, ooh. I went to a school where people didn't do this stuff. I was literally the very first person to go to something called the Dallas uh, Mathematical Olympiad. In my school's history, I was the first person to go and win anything. First person. Then I moved to the other side of town. I was like, whoa! You mean people really do that? And I realized back then that they had a different view on life. It wasn't that I couldn't do it. It was just that they believed they were supposed to do it. You approach things differently when it's something you know you're supposed to do. Case in point. When was the last time, seriously, when was the last time you walked in your house and you was like, yes, yes, my house. Why? Because it's your house. You go there every day. Think about it. So often we get caught up in things that for our parents or our grandparents would have been unthinkable. My great grandmother died at 92 years old, never owned her house, lived in the same house for 50, 60 some years. She rented it the entire time. Never owned it. My mother doesn't own a house now. I own a couple of them. It's a different expectation and a different approach. My son will not know the things that I knew. Let's be clear. Hold on, parents. That doesn't mean I don't encourage him to struggle because we mess up a lot of times. We say, I don't want my kids to struggle. Yes, you do. If your kid doesn't struggle, your kid going to be raggedy. 
I promise. I promise. So you want your kid to struggle. You want yourself to be able to push and grow forward. So what you're teaching your kids is what they see in you, not what you talk about. So if you are out learning, what's your kids going to do? If Kenosha and Rick Grigsby decide they want to endow a scholarship down at the U of A, what's going to happen to their kids? They're going to think it's supposed to happen, that their names are supposed to be on walls at universities forever. That's all they know. Think about that. So I, I use those as perspective setters because as we talk about money, we're just talking about money, but it's a bit more than that because if you're raggedy, your money's going to be raggedy, and that's it. So these are our three goals. These are our performance metrics. This is how we're going to determine what we are doing and figure out where we're going and how it's going and what's good, all right? They are very, very, very simple. Your credit score must show improvement. Remember way back on January 31st, I told you you had to pull your credit report? December 31st is the mark date. You have to have a better credit score. Now, if you're in a tough spot, I understand. Sometimes credit better just means you stop going down. So maybe we just stop the bleeding, and next year we can get you going up. But for many of y'all, your credit score is raggedy because, well, you know, had J's on my feet. J's on my feet. Somebody went shopping, right? It's okay. I, I, I know it happens, right? But that's one of those things. The second thing, we're going to pay off $250,000 in debt. Yes. 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 Now, I know some of you are afraid and said, ooh, that's a lot of money. It's not. It's not. Let me show you how. Think about your house. If you have a mortgage, you're knocking off, you know, 1000 bucks a month. Somewhere around five, 600 bucks of that is going to be principal. Over 12 months, that's about five, $6,000. Now, if 50 people go after this, Five grand from you, 10 grand from them, 11 over there. It all works out. We can get to 250. I actually think we can get to more. Uh, but I didn't want to scare y'all because uh, when 17 year old around and I hit you with our savings goal, gonna be, you're going to be messed up. Uh, the last one is we are going to increase our retirement savings by 3%, 2017. Now, the reason we're starting this in the middle of 2016 is because I want you to be ready and not be shocked, all right? If you got a 401k plan, we're going to be ready to bump that up at the start because benefit season is coming up here in October for uh, many people. So we want to have you already in a place so that you go into 17 with momentum instead of being in 17 and trying to figure it out. Right? Makes sense? So this is it. That's how we're going to measure ourselves. Now, I will say this. All too often when people start talking about money, when people start talking about what they're doing, they get bogged down in the size of what they need to accomplish or in the number of things they need to accomplish. Keep this simple, please. The reason we are focusing on three things, three things only, because we can do those. You start putting up 20 things, man, you'd be lost. Also, back to what Pastor Edwin said about praying. The good thing about it is it forces us to put more word into ourselves because we can't repeat what we don't have in us, right? Pastor Edwin said something about his roots now. I've been black my whole life. You didn't grow up saying root. You grew up saying root, just like I did. It's okay. My roots is my roots, I know. But the thing about it is you're always going to go back to that. So no matter how great, no matter how far you become, you will always go back to that. Always. So that means we have, in our choice of what we put in ourselves, we need to make sure we get the right stuff in so that when those times come, we got the right stuff coming out. Same way with money. If you know you can't go buy the purse counter without buying something. If you know they got to sell on lace fronts and that's what you want. 
<laughs> the store at the corner got Yaki number six and nine. What? You? What? They got the Brazilian Silky too? What? And it's all on sale, 25% off. I heard, I heard, I heard, a, I heard an advertisement for a store. They said everything in the store, $25. I said, wow, I feel like I need to buy something. But if everything is $25, I probably don't need to buy it out of there. I was just like, whoa. But there are a lot of people who I'm sure went down there and said, it's $25 I'm going to spend just because. Have you ever spent money just because it was on sale? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come back with nine pair of flip-flops and ain't never been to the beach. I ain't saying nothing. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So this is a quick view of what the budget looks like uh, that we'd like to go down. Uh, I won't take you through everything, but I will point out a couple of things. Note there are a couple of saving spots both at the top and bottom. Uh, it is very important that at the beginning you save some money and at the end you don't spend it all so you still have a little extra to kind of sock back. I understand that if you have gotten yourself into a predicament and you need to kind of hedge these back a little bit, that's fine. Get out of that predicament. Get to a better spot. Okay? And if you look at the targets here, come down one side, you will notice that they don't add up to 100%. That means you get to save a lot more. Other side adds up to over 100%. That means you need to fix your spending. Fix yourself. Yeah. Fix yourself. Fix yourself. If you need help, give me a shout. I know some people. I can help you out. All right. Now, just in case there's confusion, I'll let y'all read those. Take your time. Take your time. Take your time. That's all right, right? We good? That's all right. It's the matrix. The ma I know I'm messing it up, huh? So the importance of staying in your lane while they get that fixed, that's okay. I can still do this. Uh, the importance of staying in your lane. There are people in here who make a lot more money than you do. There are people in here who make a lot less money than you do. There are people in here who have more assets than you do. There are people who have less. There are people who have more liabilities, more complications. That does not mean you can't use the same lessons, right? There are people in the choir who sing soprano, soprano one, two, three. There are people who sing tenor, one, two, three, bass, baritone, wherever you want to be. That doesn't mean you can't use the same songbook, right? Okay. These are the same things, the same principles apply no matter where you are in this thing. You just might have to have a little different section of, uh, or emphasize a little different part of it, right? So. Stay in your lane. Don't look over here. I can't look at Jimmy and say, ooh, Jimmy got a Superman shirt on. I need a Superman shirt. Jimmy got all the muscles. I need all the muscles. Jimmy wear tight shirts all the time. I need to wear tighter shirts. <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> Jimmy. Okay, I do wear tight shirts because Jimmy wear tight shirts. But stay in your lane, please. Please stay in your lane. All right. Now, let's talk about our homework. <laughs> the May 29th homework was to request a copy of your credit report, right? You had to, this is a second report. Okay, this upcoming homework, we're not going to request one until October. So don't worry about pulling another one. We're going to do it in October. The reason we do this one here is just a midpoint checkpoint. So you can see that since January, you have made this amount of progress. That's all we're doing here. It's just a good checkpoint. Uh, the second, we wanted to look at June and July budgets. If you did it, 
you may have found that you needed to fine tune it. Uh, I have been doing my own budget since somewhere in the mid-90s. I can tell you I'm on my ninth version of my overall spreadsheet, and I'm on the tenth update of that ninth version. So, point is, you need to constantly be refining your budget. There are things that happen. Sometimes you have, you know, something happened, you got a new car that you got. Holla at Vest if you need one. Uh, sometimes just life situations happen. Sometimes you just figure out a better way to do something. Most of the time it's just, oh man, I figured out a better way to do it. Chicken and dumplings, instead of rolling this thing out like my grandmama used to do, I just go buy the little instant biscuits and cut them up. They don't taste quite the same, but you know, you find a better way to do it, right? <laughs> Save some time. You ain't in the kitchen all day. Uh, the last one is to complete an investor risk profile. We want to do this because all too often, and this goes back to the stay in your lane piece, we find ourselves looking at other people and saying, man, why are they getting 15, 20, 800 percent returns? Well, they got an ulcer. That's why. And if you don't want that ulcer, you need to understand you're not going to get those same kinds of returns, right? You, 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 you have to understand it takes something to get more than other people. And it, it takes part of your lives. I, I always use the, the, uh, this kind of type of example when I talk about CEO compensation. I say, do you understand that those people, every part of their life is about their business. The only reason people want to talk to them is to do business with them. No other reason. They have very few real friends. Think about that. Everything you do is scrutinized. A few years ago, Mike Duke signed a petition when he was the CEO of Walmart. That petition came back, and it was like, oh, we need to fire Mike Duke because he signed a petition. Good. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, I was like, whoa, he just was expressing his Christian beliefs. He signed a petition. They were going to fire him. Every part is scrutinized. Now, also the majority of their compensation comes in the form of variable bonuses and pay. If 80% of your income was based on a whole lot of other people doing what they need to do, would you take it? How much would you want? Would you be cool with $30,000 if 80% of that was, had to do with the person next to you? No, you want a little more. I'm not suggesting that they should be using and taking advantage of companies. I am suggesting, however, that they do earn at least a portion of that compensation. We also want to consider that there are, uh, there are things out there that we have an emotional response to. Okay, back during the 2008 financial crisis, the government came out with this crazy thing called TALF, and then it was TARP, and then it was HARP, and then it was just give money to people, but not the taxpayers, to other people, so they can get rich, but that's a whole other subject. Uh, in that whole matter, there was this issue with Citibank, and they said, well, Citibank, you receive these monies from the government, you cannot pay your people their bonuses. And Citibank said, well, wait a minute. We understand why you don't want to pay us, but this guy, this guy right here, he and his team, we have to pay them. We can't lose them. You see, this guy and his 18-person team in total had generated over $2 billion in bottom line profits for Citibank over the course of five years. $2 billion. Two billion dollars, 18 people. Now, I don't know if y'all have looked around, but there are more than 18 people in here. Okay? Over the last five years, have you put $2 billion on the bottom line of any company? They owe the, well, you have. I know why you said that. You have. Uh, but the government was saying, you can't pay these people. They said, well, if we lose these people, we lose hundreds of millions of dollars of actual profit. 
They have contracts that say if they do their job, they get money. If they don't, they get nothing. This is what you are telling the people you want to go to. We're doing it, and you're telling me we got we to gotta not pay these people? They're going to leave. The government forced Citibank to sell that division because they wouldn't pay the guys $100 million. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't reached a point in my life where a $100 million bonus is not impressive to me, especially for one year. <laughs> but if I ever do, I will let you know. This makes absolutely no sense. You do not shut down a business because you don't want to pay the people for performing. I know you don't like it. No, you may not feel good about it because you have these constituents and who they're angry they're having these emotional responses. But truthfully, people earn their money. You should pay them, right? You earn yours. When people talk about the rich, oh, you don't pay a portion of taxes. Let me tell you something. The big difference between the rich people and the working average everyday person is that the rich people have figured out how to determine where their money comes from. It is not about how much money you make. It is about how you make your money. If you are a professional athlete, guess what you get to do? You get to pay taxes on every single check that you get. And you get to pay state taxes in every single state that you play in. So yes, you may play for the Baltimore Orioles, but if you go play the Angels out in Anaheim, California is going to take part of that money. Keep track of that. If you are an entertainer and you make money in the state of Arkansas, even though you live in DC, guess what? You got to pay. State of Arkansas taxes. So what do they do? They create things like corporations. Remember the Panama Papers thing that came out a couple months ago? They were talking about all these offshore companies that people were using to hide money. That's how those things happen. I guarantee you the companies you work for have things in place that create tax favorability. So depending on where you work, go talk to your accountants. You might find something out interesting. If you ever take a look at your, uh, your, your W-4, I think that's the right form, do you work, do you get paid by the company on there? Is that the same name that's on the sign that you think? My last company wasn't. It wasn't. The company I work for now wasn't. In fact, no company I've ever worked for have I gotten paid by the actual company name on the sign. You know why? Because they figured out they could have some tax advantages from keeping us over here as employees and other parts of the, the money slot uh, put in different places. Rich people, let's take the Waltons. This is... Uh, Oh, there's uh, earnings coming out uh, this month, in a couple of days. So this is the end of a quarter for them. In a couple of days, they will get a dividend check for a little over $800 million. Okay, just a little over $800 million bucks. I know that's not a lot to some of y'all. To me, an $800 million check every 91 days is still impressive. I haven't reached the point where it's not. If I do, I will let you know. They will pay at a maximum 20% tax on that. Now, if you work for Walmart and you make more than about 35 grand, your tax rate is probably somewhere around 28. That means you are paying more taxes than they are. Why? Because they were able to determine how they got their income. So a lot of the things we talk about and we'll be talking about going forward will be about how you can make money in other ways that will allow you to keep more of your money. For instance, if you start a business, you can set up a retirement fund for yourself and you can pay out 20% of the profits into your retirement fund. You can keep your regular job and still do that. IRS cap should 18.5. If your business makes $10 million a year, you pay out 20% of the profits. Well, guess what? That's $200,000 you are not capped. We have to think differently about the way we approach money. That's where we're going. So the risk profile is going to be part of that thinking differently, understanding what you're afraid of. I told you guys the last time, if you were here, that 
uh, a few years ago when the, the tsunami hit Japan and they had the meltdown at the Fukushima uh, nuclear plant. That su- they happened on a well, Sunday night here, Monday morning there. I woke up that morning, I turned on CNBC, and I was like, oh, man, what in the world? These people keep showing Japan for it. And I turned the volume up, and I went, oh, my God. Because I knew I just lost a whole lot of money. I was up tens of thousands of dollars in the stock market, and that week happened to be the week options expired. Now, what options are, and we'll get into that in just a second, options are just a, a, um, an option to purchase but not a requirement to transact in a certain stock at a given, t- at a given price. Okay? I had options in the market at that point. They're contracts, and they expire. That Saturday, they were going to expire. Sunday, this happens. Monday morning in Japan, this happens. And I knew instantly that I was going to lose a whole lot of money. I knew it. And it was all bad. I, I wasn't even worried about making money anymore. Even though I, had, I was good and had I sold out the previous Friday, I would have been happy and everybody would have been good. But I knew I was going to lose a lot of money. And there was nothing I could do about it except watch. So I let the market open and instantly, in just a few minutes, I had gone from being tens of thousands up to 25 grand down. That's a huge swing. Now, again, I haven't reached a point in my life where being down 25000 where I was previously up several tens of thousands is not important to me. But I was down twenty five grand. Most people were panic selling. I said, well, let me see what happens. There hasn't been any follow-up. Nothing has blown up, and I don't really see anything disturbing commerce. Let's see what happens and plays out, plays out this week. I'm very, very risk tolerant, very risk tolerant when it comes to this stuff. I ended up losing two grand. Just over two grand. I think it was 2100 bucks. Now, what would have happened if I panic sold because I was doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing? I'd have been out a whole lot of money, right? So as I talk to these, through these things, I'm going to give you a whole lot of options. I'm going to give you a whole lot of different, different things that you can use, different strats, different techniques. Uh, but I want you to make sure you stay in your lane and focus on it. So let's start with a risk profile. Uh, I can put post a link out to anything, but all you have to do is type investor risk profile into anything or risk assessment into any search engine they come up. All right. The last one is Morningstar Grid. We're actually going to look at this. We're actually going to look at this today. So I, wanna, I think it's an important way just to get you thinking about it, and it's a good framework. It's like, it's like uh, y'all ever watch those old karate movies? Y'all ever watch those back in the day? They, and they always showed a scene where the guy was like, ah, real slow. Those are called kata. And what a kata is is an actual... It's, it's, it's a Japanese word. It just translates to form, right? It's a preset series of movements that's intended to mimic certain things. Now, you use those in battles. It's a form of training. It's a walkthrough for some of you athletes. That's, what, that's all it is, a slow walkthrough, right? The reason you do that is so that when you are in the situation, what comes out of you is what you have put in and practiced so you know what to go in and you don't panic and freak out. Ah, this is what this grid is going to be for us. It's going to be just a place that we can use as a basis to make decisions. All right? Any questions? Any questions? Somebody's got questions? Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. All right. So this is where we are. Uh, we were going to focus on 401 or 401ks, 403bs, uh, insurance, and uh, taking a look at ESPPs and stock plans. I'm going to delay that just so I can get a little bit deeper on the asset side. I want to make sure that you guys... Uh, really understand the asset piece. We're going to focus on asset because I'm going to tell y'all, I, I'm going to be honest with y'all, and if you don't like me after this, it's okay, I still love you. Uh, some of y'all bojangling. There's some people in here who have some serious skills to do some serious things. And honestly, 
he ain't doing much, me included. So I'd like to see us kind of get into it and do a little bit better. Is that all right? So I'm, I wasn't going to tell you all this until the next session or the next big session. But what I would like to do is for January, uh, start a business investment fund, venture capital, if you will, so that we self-fund ourselves. Because I think there are some business ideas. In fact, I know there are some business ideas here that will transform some very important things and can generate some phenomenal returns. That means we have to all be part of something and we have to all make sensible decisions. Don't come to me talking about you want to open up a car wash in the hood when it's only 3,000 people there. I'm not suggesting that you can't make money. However, if I need to put $35,000 into it and we're only going to make $6,000 back, that's a bad investment. <laughs> I love you. I told you you may not like me after this. That is a bad investment. Okay? But some of you seriously have some major ideas. I won't name any names, Tina, with her school. Um, Angel in our microbrewery. Eric in our designs. Uh, but I do think that, uh, Tam cooking, uh, searching and finance, uh, that we have some phenomenal <laughs> ideas and we need to do something. Uh, be easy. Uh, we need to do something. We need to do something. Seriously. Like, I don't even know what else to say. Kenosha Greeks, we need to start doing something different. Uh, you got some skills. You need to use them. I'm just saying, I love y'all. <laughs> so here we go. Let's get to asset classes. This is the fun part for me because, well, this is what we like to talk about. This is our stuff. An asset is any resource that we have out there that is intended to generate future benefit, future economic benefit, right? This is important. I know your blanket that you made is really, really great and you don't want to live without it, but it does not generate economic uh, value in the future. It is an heirloom. It is a keepsake. It's not an asset. What we're talking about is assets, okay? Your education, and I will stress this every single time I get up here, your education is an absolutely massive asset. The best investment you can make is in developing your skills. Let me ask you something. Think about this. If you have a college degree, right? when was the last time you learned something more about your field? Do it all the time. Now, if you're a teacher, you have requirements to meet uh, professional development. If you're an accountant, you have to do it, right? What if you're an engineer? What if, what if you're a finance guy? What if you're in sales? When was the last time you took time to learn more about your field? Because here's the thing. There's this thing in economics. It's, it's the trade-off between capital and labor. And it's actually a math equation. Don't worry, we don't have to get into it because it looks... Well, there are no numbers in it, and it's math. Um, it's capital. Labor. Capital is anything that is not your physical input. So tools, technology, uh, any type of environment, environmental requirement. Labor is just that. Sweat and an arm swinging, sweat and button pushing, whatever you do. Okay? In the grand scheme of economic development, this is the constant trade-off that's, that's occurring. So... Uh, if you go back and we started the Industrial Revolution, right? you had people on farms who were using plows and mules. Then somebody came up with fill-in-the-blank invention, whether it's the cotton gin, whether it's some sort of mechanized uh, farming implement, that allowed them to do more than they could do by themselves. So the whole 40 acres and a mule, what, where did that come from? That's how much a man could plow in a day with one mule. right? Well, if you got two mules, what does that mean? 
What if you got two people? What happens if you own 80 acres and you employ somebody? It's a little different. Then you get other equipment that comes along. Well, what happened is we saw fewer people working in agriculture because now they had implements out there that could do the work of those people, and those people were free to go do other things. Okay? Fast forward to the 70s and 80s. Anybody remember a movie called Gung Ho? Michael Keaton was in it. It was about a Japanese company came over, took over an American auto manufacturer, and they started kicking out all the Americans because they didn't make good cars. Yeah. It was a pretty interesting movie because that's actually what was happening. So let's make it into more tangible, something more tangible. Look at Detroit. People say, oh, man, Detroit is in a bad state. Why? Because it used to take, I'll make it up, 4,000 people to make a car. Today it takes, you know, 40 or 50. Those people didn't disappear, but the jobs did. So those people now have to get different skills in order to be relevant to today's market, okay? Now, think about you. Are your skills relevant to today's market? I tell high school kids all the time, I ain't worried about people my age. I'm worried about them, because those high school kids are the ones that's gonna make me obsolete. Because they're learning stuff now that I learned in college, right? So if they're that far ahead of me, that means they are trying to push me out. That means I gotta fight them. I ain't worried about y'all. I know what y'all know. I'm worried about them, because there are kids who are learning three and four languages before they get out of high school. You want to talk about globalization? They're growing up with friends in different countries. They expect to be out of the country. You're talking about, man, my Indian neighbor was celebrating something called Diwali. They're talking about, what? We've been doing those since we were three. They're telling you all the details. You're like, man, all I know is they wear color stuff. Right? So give your kid your favorite electronic device. If your kid is old enough to move fingers, that kid will probably figure out how to use it before you do. They're learning things before and, and at an earlier age than we did, right? Allen Iverson, remember Allen Iverson? AI, the answer. I remember when Allen Iverson hit the court. I was like, man, I don't like that dude. His braid's longer than mine. <laughs> Y'all some haters, dude. Y'all are some haters. I never had braids. I did have long hair at one point, big afro. Incidentally, I cut it off because the police said I fit the description of a bank robber and they detained me for a brief amount of time, but that's a whole other subject. Uh, I've never had long hair since then, no joke, that's, that's real talk. Uh, but AI got in the, in the league and he was balling, right? He's balling, he's like, oh, everybody's, oh, look at his crossover, look at his crossover, look how fast it was. But what people didn't think about was that every single high school point guard in the nation the next week had that same amazingly fast crossover. So now what do you see? Those same high school kids, D-Rose, are now in the league, Steph Curry, and what are they doing? It doesn't look as great as it did for Allen Iverson. Why? Because everybody's been practicing it for the last 20 years. Go back and watch old NBA games of Michael Jordan play. People are like, man, Jordan was before his time. Oh, man. He was just playing at a faster pace. If you took Michael Jordan of 1986 and put him into 2016, he would not be as great as he was. Not because he's not good, it's just everybody else caught up. So, you gotta do more. You have to do more. Young Kobe plays old Kobe, old Kobe wins, because he outshoots him. But if you put young Kobe in the league today, he would not be old Kobe, he would never get there. Because everybody else caught up. That's what it is. So as we think about our education, don't think about, ooh, I got a degree, I made it. The highlight of your life should not occur when you're 22 years old, unless you're 22 years old. 
maybe 23. Don't stop there. I, I, I make the joke around my buddies all the time. I say, man, when I die, I'm going to still have dreams. I'm still going to be trying to do stuff. I used to say about my grandmother. I still say it about my grandmother. She's going to die when she's ready because she keep running. Keep running. I want to learn something. My grandmother reads more than I do. I'm like, God, dog, I read all the time. How do you read more than me? And it's because I figured out she does it to stay active. She does it to stay up on things. She may have a different opinion than I do, but if you want to talk to her about what's going on in the campaign, guess what? She could, well, I saw this article. Grandmama, you reading like that? Yeah, baby. Okay. All right. So, so think about that as you, as you start to work through. Student loans. I know y'all don't like when I talk about student loans. If you are financing education that can produce economic value for you in the future, your student loans are not a liability. They are actually considered a capital investment. Now, if you decided to go to school and be an art major, and then decided to go work construction, and then decided you, you wanted to go develop your, your own sort of semiconductor, and then decided you wanted to go teach dance, and then you decided to go back to school again and get a degree from a school that is accredited, nationally ranked, but, it, but you can't find the ranking anywhere, then what you have done is wasted money. You messed up. That's okay. Take the lessons you learned, build a plan together, let's figure out how to turn those poor decisions into something that's gonna generate value, all right? Your student loans are an investment. In fact, if you were to create a balance sheet for yourself, you would list them as either, in your choice, you could at least list them as an investment in capital goods, investment in capital equipment. Remember what we talked about earlier? It was the labor versus capital. Your education is capital. That is you acquiring new skills that make you more efficient than the average person on the street. In fact, here's my opinion on minimum wage. I think everybody should be able to make money if you work hard. I think everybody should be able to make a pile of money if you got a great idea. I mean a whole lot. I have no problem with people getting rich. If all y'all get rich and I don't, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to jump up and down. I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to come to y'all house and eat up y'all food. But I'm going to celebrate because there is no limit on what can be created, okay? I promise you, think about this. Richest man in the world. Anybody know who it is? It's real easy. He's been there for a long, 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 long time. Bill Gates. Bill Gates. Bill Gates gave away a whole lot of money. He actually employs, and I, I think I've told you this before, he employs 1,800 people in Seattle to give away his money. Yet his money keeps going up. They can't give away his money faster than he makes it. He employs 1,800. 100 people, that's 1,800. In Spanish, that's 1,800. 1,800 people, and they cannot give away his money faster than he can make it. When did Bill Gates start making money? He founded Microsoft in the 70s. I want you to think about that. He founded Microsoft while most of us were alive. He started Microsoft after we were born. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. You have your ideas, do something with them. Please invest in yourself. The capital skills that you develop make you there. Now, on the minimum wage side, if you have not developed your skills beyond whatever your last level of education is, then what an increase in the minimum wage does is it devalues your skill. Let me show you why. It means that now more people can earn the same amount of money without spending the same money or investing the same money in education that you did.
So if you have an education that allows you and affords you a $20 an hour job, work out the math, I don't know for you salaried people, but 20 bucks an hour, and they raise the minimum wage to $15, what they have just said is that your four years of education is only worth five more dollars an hour. Now, if you do the math, that's 33% more. Some people will say that's a lot. Some people will say it's a little. I'll let you decide. But understand, that's what's happening when that minimum wage is, rate, is increased, okay? I'm not telling you that they shouldn't do it because, look, if you're using people, pay them fairly, right? I, I'm, I'm good with people being paid fairly. But understand, if you choose to stay where you are, the rising tide is going to drown you. If you want to be anchored where you are, the rising tide is going to lift them boats right past you and you're going to drown. All right? So just keep that in mind. Okay. Next thing, your asset base, okay? whatever it is, however you mix it out, is important and it's critical to you because these things matter. These things matter. We want to align them to that risk profile, and we want to align them to our goals. We know about banks. How many different kinds of banks are there? What are they? That's good. That's good. That's good. Merchant bank, commercial bank, investment bank. There are a couple other ones in there, too, but we don't have to dig too deep into those. Anybody know what the difference is? That's okay. I do. I'll tell you. A commercial bank, I know you know. We talked about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Commercial bank is where you go to set up your bank account. That's, that's your checking, that's your deposit. They call those demand deposits. So if you're ever listening to the news and you hear them talk about demand deposits, it's money that you can demand at any point in time. Okay. Next kind is, actually we'll jump to the third kind. Third kind is investment bank. That's Wall Street. Those are people who are transacting in stocks, bonds, they're transacting in, in uh, derivatives, they're moving commodities. Okay. In the middle, there's this thing called merchant banks. Merchant banks typically fund businesses or something similar. Merchant banks are really cool. That's the kind of bank I want if anybody ever wants to know uh, a merchant bank because you can own any sort of asset, right? And you can generate huge returns. And more importantly, you ain't got to tell nobody how much money you're making. And laws favor you. Just saying. There's a reason that there are so many people who have banks domiciled in the Grand Caymans or the U.S. Virgin Islands. I think there was, there was a report that came out and said something like there were more banks that officially had uh, their businesses domiciled down there than there were people on the island or something like that. It was crazy. It's crazy that there were more banks uh, because having that bank means you can create money. Banks create money out of nothing. Out of nothing. If you ever want a, want a good look at it, I, put, I posted a video in the group. You can go back and look for it. Uh, if you want, I, I'm happy to post it again. But I can tell you banks create money out of nothing. Okay? Because your loan is their asset. They're getting paid your money. So the more loans you take, car, boat, house, jewelry, vacation, kids' education, your education, TT NIM trip, all the trip to Disney World, whatever you're doing, those are banks' assets. The financial crisis. We saw something interesting happen. Banks were starting to close. Anybody know why? Why that was really happening? It's not because they were all crooked and everybody was there. Or they were taking advantage of people. It's because they had so many loans out there and they were in so many places that the same thing happened at the same time that the banks couldn't, couldn't, couldn't offset them. So there are these things when we talk about portfolios on the previous screen, we talked about the portfolios, right? They would say, okay, there can be an economic downturn in Las Vegas, 
but it's not going to affect real estate in Florida. And it probably won't affect stuff in Arizona, but it could, so we're going to balance it with some stuff in Seattle and a little bit of stuff in Chicago. And there are these interesting tools out there called derivatives. They fall over here on the other side. Derivatives will allow you to take your mortgage payment, and there are these things called strips. And the reason they call them strip is, strips is because you can strip your interest payment from your principal payment, and you can send those pieces of money to different people. Now, what that means, when you put all this together, is that I could take a mortgage in Seattle, I could strip out the interest, pair it with a uh, principal payment from a house in Florida, and here is a mortgage that does not exist. Does that make sense? Yeah. If it does not make sense, yes, sir. Don't make sense. Well, that they could do it or what I just, how I just explained it. Okay. So you have principal and you have interest on your mortgage payment, right? Yeah. With, with, the, uh, this guy. With, the, with the strip, they basically say, this is your principal piece because you'll have the line items on your statements, right? And this is your interest, right? This interest payment, they can take that separately. They can take your principal payment and send it somewhere else, right? They can rearrange those with any other pair that they want. And they can create something completely new that never existed before. Right. Now, if they say, okay, this all will never happen at once, right, it's cool because it probably won't. Exactly. We're going to get to that in just a second. You, you, you just right ahead. So now, if you do this in a lot of different places, they do something called diversifying. That's where diversification comes from. You get all these different things together. Now you have created this pool of stuff that did not exist. And this other pool of stuff that did not exist. And things should flow at different points so that you can now sell it. Now, in 1999, a guy that you may know, a guy named uh, William Jefferson Clinton, Slick Willie, Bill Clinton, Billy Clinton, whatever you want to call him, he signed a piece of legislation. It was November 1999. It was called the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. It repealed a portion of something called the, Gra uh, the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933. If you watched the Democratic National Convention, you saw Bernie uh, Sanders end his statement with, we're going to bring back... Glass-Steagall. Well, what Glass-Steagall was, was a response to the Great Depression and things that led to the banking crisis of the Great Depression. Okay? Glass-Steagall said, if you own a bank, you cannot have a commercial bank, an investment bank, an insurance company, and a retail bank or a commercial, or I say a commercial bank, or a merchant bank all together. You can't have all three, all, all those groups together. You, they, you, they have to be separate. So if you're from a different state, you probably had, and you grew up, you know, you, there were banks there that you didn't see when you went to other states because you couldn't do it. No, it was against the law. The Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act that Bill Clinton signed in place said, okay, we're going to take out this provision because we have better risk management. Now, the reason it was done originally is because the government said, hey, if we're going to offer insurance on people's uh, bank accounts, we want to make sure that the other side of the bank doesn't use it to go out the back door and gamble with it on high-risk investments. Because if they lose, we get stuck paying for it. But if they win, they get all the profit. Now, let's think about this. If you got the paycheck for everybody else working, what would you do? Tell them, go work. <laughs> I'm going to put this to work. I'm just going to collect money. That's effectively what the government was trying to prevent, right? So Graham Leach Bliley took out that provision and said, you guys can get together. So if you think back, 
Citibank used to be separate from Traveler's Insurance. And it was Citibank and it was Traveler's Insurance. Once this was signed, it was City. And to remind people of Traveler's, they kept the little red Traveler's umbrella and they put it into their logo. So if you look at a city logo today, it has a little red line over it. That's for Traveler's. They combined. Same thing with Bank of America. Bank of America bought Merrill Lynch. They also bought Countrywide and some other stuff that they were going to buy anyway, but the government forced them to. We can get into that later or at a different day. Um, so when the government did this, what effectively happened was it said, you guys now have governmental backing to take these deposits and go out and gamble through your investment banking arm. Why could that happen? Because all the financials get rolled up into one balance sheet. You have to roll them up into one balance sheet. So you couldn't see what each arm was doing and how they were moving the money between the banking units. You could only see what the total group was doing. And as long as the total group was good, you were good. Make sense? Not that they did it, but the explanation. Okay. So following that, a guy named uh, George W. Bush came in and said he wanted to make 5.5 million new households in America. He wanted to focus on low income, people with challenged credit, and uh, minorities and women. <laughs> Thank you, Aiden. Thank you, Aiden. <laughs> that was beautiful. That was beautiful. That's hilarious. Okay. Yes, yeah, I think it's they broke it. They all broke it. And they, and they continue to break it. <laughs> so he came in, he said 5.5 million, uh, million new households. Now, we asked the question before, if, see, let's see how well you guys remember this. The long-term average home ownership rate in the United States is 64%. That's since the end of World War II. They consider this the modern era. Anybody know what the peak of the housing crisis or the housing boom in America was? Anybody know what the home ownership rate reached? It reached 69. 69%, good to see y'all remember, equals the, the spread between uh, 64 and 69 equals roughly 5.5 million new households. The way they accomplished this was by creating a governmental draw. They changed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's uh, original charters to say they could buy more subprime mortgages. Okay? Subprimes have been around for years. I mean, literally decades. These mortgages have been around, they've been in place. Um, but they weren't very well received. Wall Street didn't like them, so there weren't many of them. What this pool did, this, this push from George, uh, well, uh, George Bush and his drive towards 5.5 million new households did, was went to Freddie and Fannie and said, hey, you need to buy more subprime. Well, those didn't exist. So they said, okay, mortgage brokers, we need you guys to sell more subprime because, well, we make more money and since we make more money, we'll pay you more money. Now, if it takes you 10 hours to do a piece of work, and if you do it one way, it makes you 200 bucks, and you do it another way, it makes you $2,000, which one are you going to do? Guess what everybody in the mortgage industry did when they started paying more money for subprime mortgages? Started selling more of them. So the mortgage broker said, hey, we need uh, you, you, you salespeople to get out there and push, sell these houses, make sure they know about these subprimes. We'll pay you more money. You make $200 doing work. Make $2,000 doing work. Which one you going to do? Everybody did it all the way down. Right? And what ended up happening is this flood of money pushed down, and then it pushed right back up through the system. And it basically said, okay, 
we can't contain ourselves anymore. So the bank said, well, we don't want to hold this stuff, not because it's toxic mortgages, but because we can't manage the risk. The next time somebody tells you that they didn't know what was in those mortgage pools, I want you to, well, you can't hit them in the mouth, but I want you to say that is wrong. Okay? Just, that's wrong. They absolutely did. You know why? Because they had to make sure everybody who owned them got paid. That's how. So what they actually were doing was tracking where each piece of that mortgage went. Now, as a trader, you don't care. You just want to be able to sell it. Well, people aren't going to buy it if they think it's raggedy. So they went and said, hey, AIG, put some insurance on this thing. In fact, put 3x the insurance on it. That way we can prove people it's really, really safe. So AIG said, how much you going to pay? You sure that ain't going to happen? You sure? Cool, here 3X. So for every dollar of mortgage that was created, AIG had $3 of insurance. Would you buy something that said, hey, your car get damaged, we're going to pay you three times whatever the amount is? Yes. So guess what happened? All those mortgage pools got sold. Now, here's where it gets interesting. You hear people say, oh, so many people lost money in mortgage industry. I guarantee you, very few of any of you will ever, ever, ever in life meet anybody who lost money directly in buying mortgages. In order to do it, you have to be what's deemed a sophisticated financial investor, uh, which typically means you need to have at least $500 million just to get in. And you have to have governmental approval as well as the risk uh, management approval from the banks. So most of the people who lost money on these were bankers. Okay? They were bankers and they were banks. Now, what they did, because they're really nice people apparently, is they passed those losses on to us and we got shafted. And they said, hey, we're going to charge you more fees for everything that you do. And then the government said, hold on. Hold on. This ain't good. Let's put this TALF thing in place to try to help these people. And they said, wait, 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 wait. this ain't going to work. We got to change it. So we got to change the name to TARP. And the $700 million, $700 billion in here, we're going to push out. But oh, man. All the banks have to take this money, otherwise people will know which banks are bad. And what will happen if people know that their bank is bad? And what will happen to the bank if all your money is out? So you will exacerbate the situation in financial terms, it's called a bank run. There's an interesting story of a bank in the Great Depression that saved itself uh, because of some very interesting maneuvering by the bank president. When the bank run happened, he told all his tellers, bring out all the money from the vault, all of it, stack it as high as you can on the table, put it all right there. And I want you to go as slow as you possibly can, counting people's money out. Because everybody was coming in, my bank's going to fail. I need my money. He said, pay it out as slow as you can. Line got long. A few people came out with their money. They have a whole lot of money in there. I got all mine. You'll probably get yours. The next day, do the same thing. But instead of paying out slow, pay it out as fast as you can get it. Guess what happened? People went, oh, they got plenty of money. Everybody ran out. Everybody was able to get it, right? It's like, oh, we don't have to worry about them. The reality was that bank was going to shut down. And had the president not instructed his people to do that and restore people's confidence, they were going to be gone. But by paying people slowly, 
it allowed more the people to see that there was a pile of money in there, even though conceptually they didn't realize it wasn't enough to pay everybody. Remember the first session we talked about the difference between million, billion, and trillion? They didn't understand, right? So, so that's what we're doing. So now you come to these banks today and you say, okay, if they're going to know who the bad banks are, we can't let that happen. Everybody has to take money. I said, okay, that's fine. The bank said, well, we're going to pay out our bonuses then and y'all just do what you're going to do. No, 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 no. You can't pay your bonuses out of this money. This is not going to be good politically. It's not going to look good. Banks were like, hey, you knew this. You knew this. Now, anybody in here think the government didn't know they were going to pay those bonuses? Let me offer you a bit of proof. Every 91 days, every publicly traded company in the United States of America, every last one of them has to file something called a quarterly report, 10Q, if you ever want to look it up. Go to SEC website, you can go to company websites. They have to post it. Every 91 days, if they don't, they're fines and there are all kinds of violations. At the end of the year, they post something called a 10K. Right? It's a whole year summary. All right? In that, and any first-year accountant student can tell you this, there is something called a wage accrual. Wages payable, they call it different things, it's the same number. Basically, they have to set aside enough money to pay their expected wages for the entire year, and they realize that expense every quarter. It is literally specified by a document that is required by the government that any first-class, first-year accounting student can find like that, and you're telling me PhDs in accounting didn't notice existed? I'm just saying. Oh, yeah, and just in case that's not enough, the analysts who value banks actually look at this line every single quarter to determine what a bank is worth based on how much they're sitting aside because bonuses are paid based on the bank's performance. So if the wage accrual is going up, that means the bank is making a lot of more money. If it's going down, that means the bank isn't. So you're telling me they didn't know? Come on, let's try it again. Try a new one on me. I've been black my whole life. There are certain things I can look in and just understand. All right? Now, as these things happen, the banks who didn't need the money said, we don't want your money. We're going to give it back. We're going to give it back. We don't want it. And the government said, no, 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 no. You can't repay us, even though everybody wanted them to repay, right? The government said, no, 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 you can't repay us because then they'll know who the bad banks are. Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs actually caused the second round of stress tests because Goldman Sachs was like, we don't want your money. We already got it. How much more are you going to need us to get? They said $5 billion. They said, okay, fine. They went to Warren Buffett. For the record, Warren Buffett made more money off of giving Goldman Sachs $5 billion than the government did. It's interesting. Warren Buffett made a pile of money off of that. Then the government came back and said, you have to take our money. We said, no, we're going to pay our, they said, no, we're going to pay our bonuses. Goldman said that to, to the government. The government said, no, you can't. He said, fine, well, we don't want your money. We'll go get some more money. The government said, you're going to take this money. Then there's a famous picture of a couple key people from the, from the government sliding a document across and all the CEOs of the bank sitting on the other side of the table like this. They don't show it a lot of places, but it's, it's an interesting picture. They're sliding it across. It's basically them telling them they had to take it. So when they came back, the government came back and said, hey, this is now open for repayment. All the banks that didn't want the money paid it back. That's why the, the bankers were allowed to keep their bonuses, because they were going to pay it back and, and embarrass the government. Right? So as soon as they opened that window, everybody started paying back. What a lot of people don't realize, the government actually made profit on TARP. Uh, last count, I think they were, over, they were definitely over $20 billion in profit. No, you will not get a tax break. No, they will not share that money with you, even though they took it from you. I'm sorry to tell you, you ain't getting it. But they did make a profit. They are still making a profit on it, as a matter of fact. 
In fact, the money that was used for HARP, the Home Affordable Refinance Program that they keep trying to get you to do, guess where it came from? TARP. They figured out, oh crap, we got more money than we actually need, so we got to do something with it before people realize. So they created, they created HARP. That's where HARP funds came from. Now, that's a little bit about economics and finances. How in the world does this have to play with us? What in the world is this? It means buyer beware, caveat emptor is the Latin. It means you have to understand and pay attention what's going on. I'm not suggesting you have to do it the way I do it just because I like this stuff and it's probably not as interesting for you guys as it is for me. But understand, this is what is affecting you. So when somebody comes out and says, we want to build a wall between the United States and Mexico, I say, hey, that's cool, but do you realize the two largest cement suppliers in that part of the world are Mexican? So if you're going to build it, you're going to pay the Mexicans a lot of money. They're going to get really rich off of your idea. Do you realize that the government of Mexico uses remittances from the United States as part of its annual planning? They aren't going to pay you to take their money away. Chris, here's $1,000. Take every paycheck from me. No, they're not going to do that. The other side is when somebody says, hey, we want all college to be free. That's a problem. Who's going to pay for it? Oh, me and you. Great. But where are those people going to work afterwards? Oh, man, you keep sending those jobs overseas. No, your college educated people aren't working in factories putting together cabinets. They're not. They want nice, cushy jobs with air conditioning and no grease. I'm just saying. Just saying. So now you are faced with people who are talking stuff about economics that don't make sense. I will tell you all the time, and I make a lot of people mad with this. I don't care what they say. I don't care what politician says. I don't care who wins. My very first question when they start coming out with policy is, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do it? Because how they do it matters. My biggest complaint about the Affordable Care Act, my second biggest complaint about the Affordable Care Act is that they didn't go after the payment system and fixing that. Had they fixed the payment system, there was way more than enough money available in the fraud that's committed through the payment system to pay for it than what it would have cost us in tax money. That's my number one complaint. Number one complaint. Or my number two complaint. I'm sorry. My number one complaint. Well, never mind. That gets into politics. Uh, if we look at these policies, they sound good and they make us feel good, ladies and gentlemen. But I promise you, ask the state of Alabama. There's a county in Alabama. They came up with this crazy, crazy thing about checking people's uh, legal status for any time you engage with a police officer. So if you get pulled over for speeding, the officer had the right to check your immigration status. This is a farming community. Guess what happened harvest time? All that food rotted in the fields. I am not in favor of anybody being exploited, but I want you to be real. The United States economy has been built on cheap and free labor. Okay? There are a whole lot of very, very rich people who got that way because of cheap and free labor. The way you eat is built off of cheap and free labor. Anybody like pineapple? I do. Guess what? They don't grow it here. They grow it in Costa Rica. Why? Because it's cheap. I like salmon, too. Guess what? They have salmon fisheries off the coast of Chile that are poisoning the environment. Why? So Walmart can sell it for $2.98 a pound. I'm not suggesting it's bad that they sell it for $2.98 a pound, but understand, 20 years ago, salmon was a premium good. You could not get it at Walmart. 
if you want to live in the lap of luxury, you're probably taking advantage of somebody else's cheap labor. Your iPhone, I like them. You Samsung people are weird to me. iPhone, I like them. <laughs> they are made by Foxconn, by people who work 18 hours like this. And they jump out of windows and kill themselves because they're stressed out. But we do it so our iPhones can be cheap. Because if we made the same thing in America, it would probably be two or maybe even three times as much. Or, unfortunately, we probably don't have the people here who are willing to work that job that long. Ladies and gentlemen, I get it. I know it's bad. I know it's good. I know you feel right. I know you feel wrong. But let's be practical about it. We have to hold our public officials to the same standards we hold our own money to. And you know why we don't do it more often? Because honestly, most of us don't hold our own selves accountable for our money. We don't. I'm not saying don't have fun. I promise you, when the day comes that I have a $100 million bonus check and it doesn't phase me, I will have a personal trick-off fund. I'm not lying. It is going to be my personal trick-off fund. That will be me going to just do stuff. Why'd you do that? Oh, no. I beat with one shoulder, one shoulder. <laughs> just confused, right? But the reason I can do that is because I think about stuff in a way that says, hey, let me take care of this part, right? Let's take care of this part first. I'm not going to risk my house just to go get some new shoes. I'm not going to risk not making this or meeting that or change the way I eat just so I can say, ooh, you ain't got these, right? I'm not saying that you know, your choices have to be the same as mine, but let's think about these things. If we can't hold ourselves accountable, we can't affect, expect our public officials to be held accountable because, frankly, we don't know enough to challenge them. We don't know enough. Let's get out there, make ourselves accountable so we can light these people up. Um, these asset classes right here, there are a couple of things. I know I have some stackers in here, people stacking silver. Uh, those are defensive assets. They are intentionally designed to not go down, which means they probably won't go up. They just kind of designed to not move down too much, right? Uh, more aggressive assets like private equity, venture capital, those things will make you a pile of money. They will also make you go very broke. Uh, I started to put a graph in here uh, that, to show the movement of the value of the United States dollar. Now, follow me if you can. In currencies where the United States dollar is the counter, okay? So when you hear people talk about the value of the euro falling versus the dollar, when you hear people talk about the yen, which is has this crawling peg to the dollar. You hear people talk about the Japanese yen changing. Okay, these currencies are traded. This is actually the largest financial market in the world. Okay, it starts trading at about 4 o'clock Sunday p.m., 4 o'clock p.m. Sunday, and it doesn't stop until about 6 p.m. Uh, Central Time, by the way, that's Central Time, 6 p.m. Uh, Central Time on Friday. They are literally open from that start time until that end time. Okay, people who trade currency either die, get rich, or quit really, really quickly, because currency moves constantly. Now, currency trades in a minimum of $100,000 block, okay? That means there are these things. So you got a dollar, right? One, a one one-hundredth of a dollar is a penny, right? If you take a penny and you divide it into 100 parts, you got a really sharp knife, but 
One hundredth of a penny is called a pip. It's called a pip. Okay? When you're trading U.S. dollars, one pip is worth $10. Okay? So one one-hundredth of a penny is worth $10. Okay? Now, that means if you move 150 pips, you just made $1,500. Make sense? I know people right now, personal friends, who do this for a living, and their only goal is to make 150 pips a day. $1,500 a day. It takes them usually somewhere between three and five hours. That's it. That's all they work, right? I'm not telling you that you need to go trade currency. But I will tell you that you need to get really, 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 really good at it. Because you will lose everything very quickly trading currency. And since most people don't know about it, it is a very easy way to defraud people. Right. Anybody heard of the Iraqi dinar? Remember that thing? They were, yeah, the Iraqi government is going to collapse and all this. Let me tell you something. When they convert currency, what was there is no more, and they replace it with something else. So if you invested in it, it's hard to tell you. Your money gone. It's gone. So currency is super volatile. You can make a pile of dough, and I'm talking cartoon money. Uh, I know people who have made two commas worth of money in you know, months doing this stuff. I know people who have lost everything doing this stuff. There are practice accounts if you want something volatile so you can figure out exactly how risky you are. If not, stick to stacking. Stick to stacking that silver, stick to stacking the gold, okay? You gotta know yourself. Any questions about all this stuff? Chris, you got that look on your face. Wow! All right. Um, some of the ones that we'll, we'll kind of look at into the next session are there here at the bottom, the 401k, the 403bs. Uh, they're the, pretty much the exact same things, just one's for public sector employees, one's for private sector employees. That means you work for Walmart or you work for the state. Make sense? IRAs, individual retirement accounts. Every person in the United States over the age of 18 is entitled to have an individual retirement account. You can put, I think the max this year is 5,500 bucks, maybe six grand. Uh, depending on your income level, it may or may not be tax deferred. It may, be, may or may not be. SEP IRA, it's a self-employed personal IRA. It's the exact same thing, but you get to put more money in it. Make sense? Uh, HSA is a health savings account, and FSA, I think I put that one up there, yep, is a flexible spending account. These are not the same, and I'm telling you this because I know benefit season is coming up. HSA, HRA, FSA are not the same. Read the thing. Trust me. One of them will get you. And one will not get you as much. And one is probably a good one. Uh, so those are the things we're going to talk about in the next session. But I want to make sure you are aware of this. Benefit season is coming up. We're going to talk about these. We're going to talk about ESPPs. Uh, those are employee sponsor, or employer-sponsored stock purchase programs. Uh, if you're a Walmart employee, I'm going to give you this little bit to chew on before we get out of here. You get a stock grant. Every year, they RSUs, I think they call them these days, restricted stock units. And every year around like the middle of March, they vest. They're like a three-year vesting period. So somewhere around year five, you start getting two of them. They double up. They, people call them double ups. They double up. You get two of them that vest at the same time. If you sell your stock the first day it comes available, Hit yourself in the forehead right now. Say, why? Say, well, look, all you have to do is hold this thing 
for one more week because the very next week after they grant that stock, there's something called the ex-dividend date. And two days later is the date of record. Now, those things don't mean anything to you right now, but let me tell you why they're important. The ex-dividend date is the day the stock starts trading without its dividend. The date of record is the day they determine who gets the dividend. So, if you sell your stock for $70 on the day it's granted to you, you get $70 times the number of shares minus taxes. If you wait 10 days, you get to sell it for whatever the market price is. It's probably not going to move very much because it doesn't usually. And you get a dividend check. So what you're doing by being greedy and getting your money 10 days sooner is missing out on a dividend check that only gets taxed at 20%. Right? And in fact, sometimes they're only as low, they're low, depending on your income, they may be taxed as low as 15. So you're missing free money is what I'm telling you. Stop selling that day. Don't do it anymore. Keep your money. Other companies do the same thing. Pay attention to when the ex-dividend day and the date of record happens. That's free money that they are saying, ha, ha, gotcha, if you don't get. Any questions?